These are the untold truths with two brown girls. Today is a good day to change lives. These are the true stories of what has transpired in our lives. This is not for publicity, but to aid in our healing. Listeners discretion advised. Hello. Today is going to be our first actual telling of some of our truths. Today we are going to introduce pretty much where the trauma began, not only for my daughter, but also for me where it relates to my daughter. Our story starts in the year 2007. Um, at this time, I had four children. I had just given birth to a little boy. His name was Isaiah. And he was absolutely beautiful. Really, really dark skin. And he had the curliest hair. Sweetest baby. When he was two months old, his dad hurt him very badly. At the time of this incident, I was at work. If you look it up on Google, Google will tell you that I was at work until 10 p.m., which is a lie. If you look it up on Google, Google will tell you that there were a lot of suspicious things in my home. And that the police had all these concerns, another lie. What happened to me and my family happened at a time where there was a lot of abuse of children going on. And I believe with my whole heart that my case became an example. It was highly publicized and there was just a lot of falsehoods. What actually happened was I had started a new job. I was a very independent person and wanted to care for my children to the best of my ability on my own because I had always been on my own. My first day of work, I did not have childcare. My childcare did not start till the next day. I called pretty much everyone I knew. My mother, my cousins, my cousin's friends, everyone, and asked them if they could watch the kids for that one day. Everyone said no. The only person that did agree was my son's father. So I got ready for work. I left my phone with him just in case he needed to reach me with my work's number. And I went off to work. small disclaimer before I get into any more details, I should advise that the things that you are about to hear have never actually been discussed between me and my daughter. The things that I am about to say she has never heard, and the things that she will say after I have never heard. So please bear with us. So I went off to work. I left early in the morning around lunchtime, I used a co-worker's phone to try to reach my home. He was not picking up the phone. 
I kept calling. He was not picking up the phone. At this time, I advised my my managers, my supervisors that I needed to run home really quick just to make sure everything was okay because no one was answering the phone at home. When I got there, my older three children were sitting in the living room watching TV. The guy that I was seeing at the time was in the back of the house and my son was in my bedroom laying on my bed and he was shaking. At the time, I was 20 and to me it was shaking. It was actually a seizure, which I learned later. But he was shaking and his eyes were rolling in his head. And I started asking a million and one questions, which only lasted for a few seconds. Because I quickly asked for my phone, I called my mother. I told her she needed to meet me at the hospital so that she could take the older three children because something was wrong with the baby and I needed to take him to the hospital. I got on the bus. I got to the hospital with all my children. As we walked up to the hospital, my mother pulled up. My older three children got into the vehicle with my mother. This was the last time that I was going to see them for several months. I did not know that at the time, so there were no long, exaggerated goodbyes or hugs and kisses. It was a simple, mommy will see you later, and they got in the van. I went into the hospital with my son and told the nurses everything that I knew. They took my son in the back and I sat in the waiting room pacing with his dad. I paced for a while before they finally came and got me. I had been to Children's Hospital many, many times and I had never seen the area in which they took me. They walked me past all the rooms down a long hallway and into a back area and then into another room where they shut the door. There was a couch and a chair and a table and they asked me to have a seat. I took the seat and I looked at the nurses with the most concern on my face because I could not understand why I was in this room. The nurse grabbed my hand. And I can remember very clearly one word out of her mouth, bleed. At that point, I started screaming as I heard her give me details. She said that he was bleeding on his brain, behind his eyes. brain was swollen. He was having seizures. And that he might not live beyond the night. I fell to the floor. I think I cried out louder than I had in my entire life. 
And I was not... <laughs> I was not new to pain in any way at all. I begged to see him. And they took me up to the ICU where he was. I called everyone I knew. And to this day, I still don't know why I made a single phone call. Because not a single person in my life gave a damn about me or my children. And yet, I still felt like I needed some form of support. Like I needed someone to be there with me because I couldn't be there by myself. I dialed every number in my phone. They put me in a waiting room and everyone showed up within an hour just to talk shit I will never forget my cousin and her best friend who to this day still talks shit <laughs> sat in my face yelling and screaming at me about why would I leave my son with him why would I leave my children with him I had never known this man to be cruel to my children and he was the only support that I had he was the only help I had I had no one. I had no friends. I had no family. I had no one. It was me and four kids. And all the judgmental faces that were in that room at this point didn't ever reach out a hand to help in any way. Before I got to see my son, the police showed up. They took me into a room along with his father and they started asking questions questions I couldn't answer because I was still screaming I don't remember ever not screaming I don't remember ever not crying and just begging to see my son these people had just told me that he was going to die and I wanted to see my son the police said they needed to take me downtown and ask me some questions and they did they took us both they put us in separate rooms and these very mean and loud cops came into the rooms and they started screaming and asking questions and I'm still sitting there crying and I couldn't understand for the life of me why they were screaming at me what did they expect me to say to them what did they think I knew and they told me that I better tell them what happened before he tells me before he tells them what happened and then I go to jail And they kept throwing around that word, jail. And I'm sitting here like, why would I go to jail? I just want to see my son. I don't know what's going on. I just want to see my son. I wish I could remember her name, but I don't. There was one officer and she finally told the one that was yelling at me. I don't think she knows what happened. We should probably take her back to the hospital. I remember crying very loudly when I heard those words because that was kind of the nicest thing I'd heard that whole day. When they took me back to the hospital and I finally got to go into the room where he was. There were tubes everywhere. 
I had never seen so many tubes in my entire life, and they were in the tiniest little baby. And he just sat there having seizure after seizure after seizure, and I watched as his body bounced off that bed over and over again. And all I kept thinking was, is he, is he okay? How can he move like that? I stood by his bed and wouldn't move. I wouldn't eat. I was literally in that hospital with him. Every single day, I refused to shower. I refused to leave. Even when I got the call a few days later from CPS saying that they were taking my children. They were going to court and getting custody of my children. I was in the hospital at this time with um, another friend that I had met through my sister. Um, she was some girl that I had had a crush on and we had kept in contact with each other and she came up there just to see how I was doing. And she was there when I got the call. And after they said the words, and I was trying to understand why, I literally fell on the hospital floor. She started screaming at me to get up, get up off the floor, get up. I didn't want to get up. <laughs> I never wanted to get up from that floor. She picked me up, though. And I just set my phone down. I wasn't invited to the court date. I wasn't even told when it was. They got custody of all my children. More importantly, they gave me a restraining order to include my son. When the nurses and the doctors heard about this restraining order, they laughed. This was another kindness. They said, under no circumstances were we ever going to force you to leave this, leave this hospital. We, they didn't care what the, the judge said, what the attorney said, what anyone said. They were not going to force me to leave my son's side. They sat there and watched me stand by his bed and cry my eyes out every single day. And they were not about to make me leave. And I wasn't going to leave. They were going to have to drag me out of there. I asked to meet the people that my children were placed with. This woman came to the hospital. Her name was Monique. I remember the first time I met her, we sat downstairs by the doors of Children's Hospital and we talked for a few moments. She told me who she was and that she was going to take care of my children while they were with her. And I was still crying. I, I never stopped crying. And I really didn't want to hear what she had to say. I didn't want her to have my children. But I thanked her. And begged her to look out for them. The first placement that they placed my son with. Because he had not died that night. And they were anticipating he was going to leave the hospital was a Caucasian woman and I asked them to find a woman of color 
So they did. And she was the sweetest woman. She was an older woman. And it was just her and her husband. She was the sweetest. Sweetest woman. My son was in the hospital for a total of two months. And I stayed there with him every single day. It wasn't until I started feeling pain that I couldn't understand that I went to the emergency room downstairs myself. My blood pressure was through the roof and they couldn't figure out why, so they had to transfer me to Buffalo General and I didn't want to leave. And I begged them not to make me leave and they said, listen, something's wrong and you need to go. My son was going to be leaving the hospital. the next day and I just wanted to be there with him I, I wanted to be able to say goodbye I didn't know when I was going to see him again and they told me that I had to leave so they transferred me and when I got to the hospital they ran some tests and the doctor pretty much told me that I had to have surgery started throwing out all these big words and Asked me if I had looked in a mirror and I'm like, no, but I need to go. I need to be at the hospital with my son. Whatever you need to do, can we do it tomorrow? And he said, ma'am, get up. And I said, why? And he said, go in the bathroom and look in the mirror. And so I did. And this was the first time I had seen a mirror in two months. My eyes were yellow, not a little yellow, a lot of yellow. My eyes were so yellow you could see it in my skin. And he said, out of all the people I've ever seen in my life, I've never seen a black woman's skin yellow. He said, ma'am, you're dying. And if you leave this hospital, I can't guarantee you'll be able to come back tomorrow. I need to do this now. Apparently, my gallbladder had filled up with stones and one had fell somewhere in my system and blocked some duct and my whole system was filling up with bile and I was dying and so I couldn't leave I had to stay and get surgery emergency surgery it was two-part surgery one to put a stent in to allow the stone that was blocking the bile to move and then another to remove my gallbladder The next day, my son was released from the hospital. And I pretty much left the hospital when I was okay to leave the hospital after a few days and waited to hear when I could go to court. And that is when our story pretty much starts. And now I'll hand it over to Faith. <sighs> All right. Well, there's not really much that I remember. I was so young. I think the very first thing I can remember about Foster Home is when we pulled up, we lived in the Lanefield Project. And all you could see through the window was 
SpongeBob curtain. He had a SpongeBob TV, SpongeBob bed set. My foster sister's favorite character was SpongeBob, so everything was SpongeBob. I guess it was supposed to make us feel more comfortable. And the day we got there, they took me and my sister and brother to the park that was in the project. And I sat on the slide where my foster mom and dad couldn't see me the whole time for almost two hours. I just sat on the slide while my brother and sister ran around. I don't I don't think I was upset. I just, I was nervous, shy, I guess. But I just sat on the slide. It was a very interesting experience. But other than that, I really, really don't remember anything else except I got suspended a lot, expelled a lot. And then the next very clear memory is the first time my foster dad ever touched me. And I remember I had just got suspended from school, so it was just me and him home. And I don't know. A wish Intuition is a hell of a thing because you can always just feel when something is off. No matter how young or old you are, when something's not right, you just know something's not right. But that whole day, nothing ever happened. Until the whole family got home and we were watching Spider-Man. And the way our living room was set up, there was like a living room and then a den and then a sunroom. My foster dad had his favorite brown recliner in front of the sunroom where he sat just sitting. And I remember I sat in front of his recliner that one day. And he slid down on the floor behind me and he had never did it before, but... Everybody else was in the living room watching Spider-Man paying us no mind. And I always sat in the back because I've always been more of a by-myself kind of person. And that was where I was most alone at. And I remember he put his hands in the back of my pants. And he just sat it there. And I froze. And for the whole Spider-Man movie, he just left his hand there. And I guess because I didn't do anything or I didn't say anything that was good enough for him. Because that night when I came downstairs... He was in the kitchen drinking a beer and he pulled me in the kitchen and he told me that I was all beautiful and I was pretty and one day I was going to make somebody very happy. And then he basically flat out said that he was going to do something to me or to my sister. He said he preferred me because my sister was smaller and he liked light skin. And I mean, I guess I didn't think much of it at the time. I was like, of course not my little sister. And that was the last he spoke of it for at least a month, maybe. And then So about a month later, I was suspended from school again for another reason. I just really liked getting in trouble at school. I came downstairs to use the bathroom because there was only one bathroom and it was downstairs. And my foster dad slept downstairs and had his recliner a lot. But him and his recliner kind of blended in together. So you would never actually be able to tell that he was there other than the fact that he snored something ungodly. But I remember coming downstairs to go to the bathroom and get something out the kitchen. And he was in the kitchen. And he scared the hell out of me when he called me. And I walked over to him. We were just talking. 
he was telling me I need to stop getting in trouble at school. I was making everything hard and it didn't have to be hard. And then I remember he pulled down his pants and asked me if I wanted to put him in my mouth. And I asked, why would I do that? And he said it was kind of like candy. And I told him I didn't want to. And I wanted to go upstairs. And he let me go upstairs, but he told me, he said, remember, it's your or your sister. And that was that for the night. A couple of days later is when it finally happened. I came downstairs again because there was only one bathroom. And he grabbed me as I came by his chair. And he had a big jar of Vaseline. And he pulled my pants down and he put the Vaseline on me. He used it as glue. And all I can remember is the most painful experience I had ever had in my life. It was absolutely awful. I threw up. I peed because I originally went downstairs to go to the bathroom. It was just terrible. And I don't remember the pain, but I know at that point in time, it had to be the worst thing I ever felt. <clears throat> After he had finished, I went back upstairs. I didn't need to pee anymore. And I wrapped my towel around me, and I got in the bed. We had bunk beds. I slept above my sister, and I just cried. And when I came down the next morning, the throat and pee was gone. So he cleaned it up, and we just went about our day like nothing ever happened. He never said anything to me. He never looked at me funny. We went about our regular duties. <clears throat> I would go with my foster mom to work in the morning because she didn't want to leave me home. If she worked as a nurse aide or something, I really don't remember. I know she took care of a disabled girl, but I think she was part of the family. But that was it for a while. Uh, I never told anybody. I didn't feel like I needed to. He said it was me or Nevaeh. And then it happened again. It was during the day. We were just home by ourselves because everybody went out. Because I was always in trouble, I wasn't allowed to go do things. And I was sleeping on the couch, and he woke me up, and he told me that it was his turn to have candy. And I really didn't know what that meant at that point. But, you know, I'm a little older now, so I kind of get it. And he had his, his famous tub of Vaseline with him. And after it happened that time, I told him that I was going to tell my foster mom. And that night was the first night I had ever actually slept in a basement. My, They moved me away from my brothers and sisters because I was tainting them, I guess. They didn't want me around my brothers and sisters. And I was never my foster mom's favorite. So I'm sure my foster dad didn't have much convincing when putting me in the basement. I had my bed down there, a little pillow. It was not all that it was cold, but it was a basement. And I actually love the way basements smell now. So, But I slept in the basement for just about a week. Um, I was allowed to come upstairs, you know, eat dinner and stuff. And the rape never stopped. He just came into the basement. It was a more convenient place for him to find me. I wasn't allowed to come upstairs. He always knew I would be in the basement in the corner where he put my bed in. And 
it just, it never stopped. I started my period really, really young. And after that, he kind of backed off. He told me that I was dirty and that I wasn't innocent anymore. No, I wasn't clean. And nobody was going to want me because he used up my innocence. And that he was going to go to my sister next because she had something I did. Fortunately, this, this conversation was towards the end of our stay there. But it never stopped. Even after I started my period, he told me I was dirty. He would just call me dirty every time. You're dirty. You're disgusting. But he never once worried about pregnancy, STDs, nothing. I remember I went to the hospital because I thought something was wrong with me. I was bleeding, but it wasn't a period because it didn't stop. But it was just a, a tear that I had. A really bad tear that they put one stitch through, and I was fine. My foster mom took me back to the hospital to keep checking up on it. But um, that was it. My foster dad didn't touch me while the stitches were in. It was... It was really the start of a very long and terrible, terrible childhood. Uh, just about two years almost of just rape every day. But, I mean, I didn't really realize anything was wrong with it until later because in my head, you know, I was protecting my sister. I was doing my older sister duty. And it's... As sick as it sounds, I loved my foster dad for a really long time. I really, really loved him. I always wanted to be up under him, which only made it easier. I always wanted to be around him. I felt like he loved me more than anybody else would. That's what he always told me. Nobody's ever going to love you. I used your innocence. You have to belong to me. He used to tell me when I went home, he would still talk to me because he was going to miss me and that he was never going to let anybody else have me. It's kind of off topic, but as convenient and fortunate as it is, he actually passed away a couple years ago and that makes me feel kind of good. So, But he shaped my life for abuse and issues out the ass, trauma. I will honestly say he ruined my life because had it not been for that experience, I would have not let myself be put in so many situations. But I don't know. I think I think the worst part about the entire situation was that my foster mom knew the whole time. I later found out she knew the whole time. And it was just like, there was no escaping it. Like, my life was based around sex. After my foster brother, he was a couple years younger than me, came of age. I remember, we called it sex, but I mean, it really wasn't. But we caught ourselves having sex one time. And then after I didn't want to do it again, that wasn't enough for him. So then between my foster dad and my foster brother, it was just day in and day out. It's just great. 
I did, however, get moved to a different foster family because I, I would assume the courts got tired of me creating problems. And it was this nice older black couple, and I can honestly say they were like my, my silver lining. They they made the last, I think it was like two or three weeks, okay. But it wasn't enough. There's not never enough niceness in the world to erase what I went through, so... During this process, I was in court and granted visitation, supervised visitation. There was this nice building in South Buffalo where I would meet with my children. Given the fact that I had my own very painful childhood and I had already had my experience as a child with foster care, there were certain questions that I always asked my children. Who was in the house? Was there anyone you didn't know? Was anyone hurting you? On one, on one occasion, Faith told me that there was a man and that he was smoking marijuana. She didn't tell me anything else. She just told me that. So at the next court date, I told the judge that there is a man in the house and there was not supposed to be. It was only supposed to be Monique. So I told the judge, my daughter said there's a man in the house and he's smoking marijuana around them. The judge did not give a damn about the words that came out of my mouth other than the fact of the word marijuana. She said, how would your children know what marijuana is? Now, this alone <laughs> was an issue for me because had that judge been a woman of color or a man of color, that would not have been the question that I was asked. Because it is almost known in our community that people smoke. That That is just something that they do in their leisure time. Some people smoke and occasionally kids see it. Was it something I did in my house? No. Was it something that I allowed Around my children, no. Did my siblings smoke? Yes. So had my children seen it? Did they know what it was? Did I tell them that it was something I did not do and would not want them to do? Yes. So were they aware of what it was? Yes. And this white female judge that sat on that bench was more concerned with the fact that my six-year-old daughter knew what marijuana was than the fact that there was a strange man in the house that was smoking around her. So she scolded me. And she advised everyone involved to inform my children that they were not allowed to talk about their foster home anymore with me, or my visits would be terminated immediately. So when I saw them next, the woman that supervised the visits said to me, you are not allowed to ask the children any more questions. If you do, I have to terminate the visit and the children have to leave. How was I supposed to protect my children if I couldn't ask them questions? How was I supposed to protect them if I couldn't even communicate with them about what was going on? 
So in all the pain that I was in, I had to think. I was allowed to take them to the bathroom. She did not go into the bathroom with us. She waited outside the door. So when we went into the bathroom, we had our talks. Good places, bad places, places people shouldn't touch. And I honestly thought that I was doing the right thing by asking them, where are your bad places? Does anyone touch these places? And I would examine them myself. And I never, I never noticed anything. I never saw anything wrong. And I thought I would. I thought I would notice if something was wrong. But I kept acting, and I kept looking every single time, and I never, I mean, I noticed her behavior change and the way that she interacted with me, but she never said a word, and I didn't know how to act. I didn't know how to ask. It finally... It finally came time for them to come home after two and a half years. I got an attorney who pretty much told me that everything that they were doing in my case was bullshit and that they were literally screwing me over and that they had been from day one. All of my children had the same attorney. The judge, the, the CPS representative, the attorney for CPS, everyone was adamant about not sending Isaiah home. And the older children had the same attorney as him. So they were working one agenda for all of the children based on what they wanted for one. And he was literally the best attorney in the area. Like I searched best attorney in the area and I went with the best. He was the most expensive and he was amazing. He walked into that room and everything changed from that day. The children got separate attorneys. The county started talking to me differently. This was the first attorney that I had that wasn't a public defender. And they started talking to me differently. They started negotiating, which they had never did before. They actually started communicating with me instead of at me. I remember when they sat me down in the room and they gave me my options, what they called them. They said under no circumstances were they going to allow Isaiah to come home 
that they believed his care was beyond my ability. And so I had two choices. I could sign over my rights to Isaiah and they would allow the adoption to be open. I was going to be able to have four pictures a year. Four visits a year and communication. And then they would give me my older three children and I could leave with them. There would be no follow up. I could just leave. The other option was I could keep fighting to get them all. And they would put all of my children up for adoption and I would never see them again. And for the first time in two and a half years, I cried like I did while he was in the hospital. And I said no, and I walked out of the room. And my attorney followed me, and he sat me down, and he said, Randy, listen. He said, I'm so sorry. But I have done everything I can do. There is nothing else I can do. He said, if you had retained me. Even a year before. I could have fixed this. He said, but. Bill Clinton. I put a law into place that gave a time limit to how long your children could be out of your care. And basically what the legislation said was after 22 months in care, the county could take your rights and put your children and put them up for adoption and you could lose them. At this point, I was beyond 22 months. I was at 24 and some change. And I didn't understand any of the legal bullshit, but I understood that that meant I had no time. And he walked away and gave me a minute. And as I sat there in the same area that I sat in the first time that I'd ever walked into that building. I remember a conversation that I had with my mother. Because for some reason, my mother showed up to court when they actually had me come in the very first time two years before. And I cried the whole time. And when I walked out of the courtroom, I sat down and I cried. And my mother walked up to me and she said, What's wrong with you? And I thought that was the dumbest thing this woman could have said. And she said a lot of dumb things to me. She said, what is wrong with you? She said, why are you taking this so badly? And I remember in that moment, I lifted my head and I lifted my eyes to her because I wanted to look her in her eyes as she finished 
whatever it was she was about to say to me. And she said, are you this upset because you believe that they aren't going to forgive you the way you haven't forgiven me? And I remember my aunt walking up to my mother and moving her away from me. It was almost as if she saw the fire in my eyes that was about to force me out of that chair and to lunge at my mother. Because how dare she, how dare she compare the two situations. But I remembered her word as I sat there. And I thought about it. If I kept fighting and I lost them, I would never have an opportunity to work on them forgiving me. And at no point did I accept the fact that losing one was okay because I got back three. Because it wasn't. No part of it was okay. But was it fair to the older three? They had an opportunity to come home. I had a chance to bring them home. So, I walked into the room and I signed the papers. And then we walked back into the courtroom and they gave the papers to the judge. <laughs> and she looked me in my face and said, you fought all this time just to sign over your rights. She said, I don't understand it. And I just sat there crying because I'm like, are you kidding me? I was naive. But there was no way she didn't know what they had said to me in that room. There is no way she didn't know what was going on. And I just sat there crying my crocodile tears as she loved to call them. And they told me I could go pick up my children and they closed everything out. And at the time I was in the military and I was stationed in Virginia. So I picked them up and we left. And I swore I would never, ever return back to Buffalo. I hated the place. And a few months later, they broadcast my son's adoption all over the news. It was their way of reaching the climax in this huge case that they had with this horrible woman who allowed this man to abuse her child. And she must have known, right? 
and I got messages and calls from everyone asking how could I have been such a horrible mother and a horrible person? How could I have let this happen? And everyone was in tears and my cousin and my cousin's friend, she was in tears. How could you let this happen? What is wrong with you? And I sat there and I listened as they said all these things to me. As if somehow they knew what had happened or as if somehow their pain was any greater than mine. But I pretty much blocked everyone and tried to move forward. I started noticing little things. Faith started writing words on the walls, inappropriate words. One of those words being sex. I asked her how she knew what that meant. She wouldn't really talk to me. I took her to see my therapist. And that was when the abuse came out. I remember her asking me to put faith on medication. I remember her changing my medication because I couldn't handle any of it. <laughs> if I could have been sedated through the entire process of hearing the little bit that I allowed her to tell me, I would have been. But I didn't want to sedate her. I didn't want to put her on any kind of medication. I wanted her to be able, in my mind, to work through it because I believed she was so young that putting her on medication was the wrong thing to do. So I said no. And she loved the therapist like I did. So she loved going to see her. But being in the military, nothing is consistent. And we had to move. And when we moved, she lost that person, another person. And she swore she would never talk to another person again about it. And even though I tried to continue their communication via phone, it wasn't enough. And she never did speak to another person the same way. I think this is a, probably a good place to start to stop for today. Um, this brings us to pretty much me being married for the second time. Um, as Faith just said next to me, the start of her rebellion. <laughs> um, 
pretty much where she really started to act out. Um, <laughs> she said she lost her damn mind. You couldn't hear that, but that's what she said. <laughs> um, but next week we will pick up where <laughs> we're leaving off where um, I get married um, and we start working on an adoption for the children and as Faith said <laughs> the start of the rebellion <laughs> where she pretty much lost her damn mind <laughs> you're laughing and I know it sounds fucked up, but my rebellious years were the best years of my childhood. Yes, I was getting arrested. I had so much fun. <laughs> I had absolutely <laughs> no fun during this time in her life at all. They were probably some of the worst years of my life. <laughs> it also leads into our return to Buffalo, New York <laughs> do that again no. <laughs> she said doo, doo, doo. <laughs> yeah um, that is probably the best way to describe that um, <laughs> insert scary music because that's what it was <laughs> but again we'll end here and for all of those who are listening who are in the realm of mental health and understand exactly how tough this process is on the both of us um, you can probably assume how many times we have actually had to stop the recording um, and go off mic um some emotion is a little bit too much um, right now. Um, we make it to a point where we do not have to stop, but at this point, uh, there were a few stops. I just want to assure you that we have worked out safe words and stop words, and we also have agreed to sit and meditate for a few moments after each of these recordings to bring us back to a safe place to go back into our world where we are with our children. My children, her child, my grandbaby. Um, we are doing our very best to keep ourselves in a peaceful place as we keep things cordial as we handle these these sessions with each other and I will turn it over to Faith to close out with our quote my darling you hold so much sadness in your eyes I can almost touch the, sc the scars of your soul and cry and that quote we found today is by Alexandra Basilu. 
I had to Google how to pronounce that last name, but that's neither here nor there. Um, thank you for listening. And on that note, we will see you guys next week. Bye. Bye-bye.